As Jake mentioned, this is a pretty long sermon text, so he read for us the first 25 verses, and I will pick up the encounter in verse 26, John 9, 26. Then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Thus far the reading of God's perfect word. Which matters more? People? Or principles? For many, the answer is obvious. Principles. After all, without truth, what have we got? And for others, it's equally obvious. People. The effect a principle has on real human beings is far more important than any words in isolation. John 9 is nestled between chapter 8's increasing conflict between Jesus and the religious rulers and chapter 10's famous, I am the good shepherd. What happens here is connected to both. The Pharisees appear to love principles more than people. They have no love for Jesus, no love for the blind man he healed, for his parents, nor for anyone else under their charge. In that respect, Jesus, the good shepherd, is quite a contrast. But the problem with the Pharisees is not that they're principled. And Jesus isn't the good shepherd because he loves people at the expense of principles. Jesus simply rejects the false choice. And the passage shows us that it's only when your principles are wrong, man-made rather than God-made, that you ever have to choose between the two. A life that is committed to godly principles, a life like Jesus's, inevitably overflows with love for others. Now, this isn't just a problem for jerk religious rulers. Isn't it a regular temptation for us? And look here at the disciples. We see at the beginning of the passage, encountering this young man, a man blind from birth, their first response is pretty telling. 
They've accepted as theological truth the principle that physical affliction is the result of sin. If you're suffering, it's because of sin. And scripture does teach that sin is the reason for human suffering. Our first parents brought calamity into the world through their sin and rebellion against God. We individually and our race and our planet and all of our world lives under the curse that our sin deserves. But the principle the disciples are assuming here goes a step further. It claims that sin and suffering aren't just generally connected because of the curse, but that they are specifically and identifiably connected in each and every case. So like Job's miserable counselors, the disciples are trying to figure out what specific sin caused this man's blindness. And it's tricky. It's a puzzle because the man was born blind. Did the offense occur in the womb? It's possible. Or does it mean that the blindness is punishment for some sin his parents committed? Disciples can't decide. And so they turn to Jesus for clarification. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? One scholar draws some very tempting application from this exchange by pointing out that when someone crosses our paths, we have a choice about how to react. If the person excites our envy, we can attack them. If they excite our curiosity, we can ask questions to solve the theological puzzle. But neither of those responses loves him or helps him. The main thrust of that point is correct. People should not be viewed as enemies to be attacked, nor as puzzles to be solved. Every person that we ever look at should be seen first as a person to be loved. But it's also important we don't misunderstand how Jesus loves here and in all such interactions. It's not that he sets aside his principles in order to love people. It's that he, committed to godly principles, is always guided to love. The disciples are guided by an incorrect principle, that idea that you could trace specific suffering or calamity back to a specific sin and draw a straight line and say, that made that happen. And that principle means they fail to love God and the blind man in this particular exchange. Look at what Jesus does by contrast. Rather than look backwards at the cause of the problem, he looks forward to the purpose It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. God is glorified when his greatness is on display for the world. The purpose of this man's blindness, not all blindness, this man's blindness was that the glory of God would be revealed through his healing. It's not always healing. It's not always relief from suffering through which God is glorified in our trials. But God is always glorified. Jesus says we must work the works. He and the disciples and us, we are all doing kingdom works to the glory of God. And the application of godly principles that result in the love of God and neighbor are the glorious works of his kingdom. 
He contrasts this here to a brief period of time that will be coming soon that he calls the darkness. Another pastor explains that this signals to us how the healing is to be understood because this is not just a miracle. Remember, in the book of John, it's a sign that the work of the Father mediated through the sent Son is to shed light on the darkness. Then Jesus heals the man born blind. You see how much is happening in just one healing? One healing. A man born blind is healed and given sight. Let's not minimize that for a second. What would that be like? But also, God is glorified in the man's blindness and his healing because his greatness and his power over the earth are displayed to the world. All things are within his hand. And a sign is given Not just a miracle, but a sign that points to the healing of spiritual blindness that Jesus will accomplish on the cross. And the disciples who have this false principle by which they live are taught in godliness and learn to think as God thinks. All of this taking place from one man's blindness. And so we can say that that, all of that, is why this man was born blind. It can be very hard for us to see and understand why there is suffering, why there is a particular calamity that has taken place. And we often don't get to see everything we see at work in this story, just how much God purposed for that suffering. The disciples, like Job's miserable counselors and many counselors today, wanted a simple and straightforward example of why suffering was a part of this man's life. But that's not how it works. Here we see that suffering was a part of his life because God has two desires, to be glorified and, as Jake prayed, to call his people to himself. And that's what he does here. And that's what he does in all suffering. Now, healed, the man returns to his neighborhood. No doubt he was both shocked and delighted. Can you imagine what it felt like? And his neighbors don't know what to think. Blindness just isn't something that people get healed from. Some think it's more likely that the blind man they knew simply disappeared and a new guy who looks kind of like him showed up in his place. That's how unlikely this whole event seems to them but he insists on his identity. He insists that Jesus healed him. Now, the details of the healing will be repeated several times in the chapter. Don't read too much into what details are included or left out in each retelling, since he likely said more than is recorded here, and John is just including the basics to move the story along. But whatever details he did tell the neighbors, it's enough that they want the religious authorities to weigh in. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not trying to make trouble. I suspect that if a man in Dunwoody gained a reputation for healing the blind, you all might come to our session and ask us what we think about that. Healing from blindness is not a common occurrence. And what do we make of a man who can do such a thing? Verse 14 is where John tips us off, though, to the pretext for the controversy. He says, it was a Sabbath day, 
when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Making mud, you guys will love this. You love the Pharisaical laws. Making mud broke the Sabbath under the Pharisaical restrictions because it was the same work as kneading bread, and that's not allowed on Sundays. And actually, healing, unless it's an emergency to save someone's life, is also not allowed on Sundays under the rabbinical code. And so this generates a dividing line, one that you saw first among the crowds in last week's text and now even within the religious rulers of how to understand all this. And the groups are represented by opposing syllogisms, logical arguments. The first group calls Jesus a a sinner. Here's their logic. People who are from God keep the Sabbath. Two, this man does not keep the Sabbath. Thus, this man is not from God. We probably shake our heads at disbelief in this. Jesus healed the man of blindness. How could a Sabbath principle matter more than a man whose blindness is cured? And so the other group feels that tension that we naturally feel, and they offer a different argument. One, only people who are from God can give sight to the blind. Two, this man gave sight to the blind. Thus, this man is from God. Now, their argument feels far more satisfying because they reach the right conclusion. Jesus is from God. And their argument affirms the blind man's lived experience as being more important than any theological principle. That's why we have to be so careful. You see, the second syllogism, while more emotionally satisfying, is wrong. Jesus' ministry illuminates the Old Testament. It doesn't overturn it. Scripture says again and again that it's not enough that someone can perform miracles. That's basically their argument. He performed a miracle, therefore he's from God. And Scripture says again and again that is not enough. It says it's not enough even for a prophet's predictions of the future to come true. Because the Scriptures say time and time again that if a prophet's teaching is not consistent... With the revealed word of God, nothing else matters. The prophet is not from God. One pastor writes, taken in its strongest form, that second argument is worthless, even if the conclusion is sound. Miracles cannot be an infallible guide to godliness. It's actually the first argument that is both logically and biblically sound, but only if, and this is a big if, Only if the principle is from God. The principle here of what it means to keep the Sabbath, if that is from God and not from man, their argument is actually correct. But that's where they go wrong. And please see this. It's not that they're putting principles over people. That's not the problem. Godly principles lead to glorifying God and loving people. Their problem is that their principle isn't of God. And as with all the subsequent debate and conversation that takes place in the rest of this chapter, the one thing the Pharisees take off the table from the beginning, the one thing they are never willing to do is to reconsider their own understanding of what God has said. 
They're never willing to imagine that what they believe might not be what God has said. That's where they go wrong. It's not that they're too principled. It's not that they think principles matter more than people. Godly principles lead to both. One group, though, applies the right logical test. But their commitment to an ungodly principle leads them astray. They get the wrong conclusion. And the other group reaches the right conclusion this time, but it's almost coincidental. And their example is not one that is safe to follow. Now, what all the Pharisees are deeply committed to is tightening up their ranks and presenting a unified front to the people. But it's very hard for them to unify given the facts of this case. The man was born blind and Jesus was healed him. Those pesky facts are really a problem for the Pharisees. So what you read in verses 18 through 26 is their attempt to cast doubt on either or both of those facts by any means necessary. Skepticism in a case like this is justified. When people make important claims, we should be skeptical. But these men aren't just skeptical. They're cynical. Their personal disdain for Jesus, their own feelings, affect what they're willing to accept and believe about reality. They're not following the evidence. They're not following the witnesses to see what the truth is. They are only looking for support for what they already believe. Skepticism is okay. Cynicism is not. It's good to take time to carefully consider a matter. A few weeks ago, we talked about hot takes. That's not helpful. It's good to take time to carefully consider a matter, to understand the facts of a situation, and to evaluate the biblical principles that apply. And we have to do what the Pharisees would not do, which is to evaluate our own principles and commitments to make sure that they are godly, that they are what Scripture teaches and not just what we want to be true. We all know, we all have experienced, some of us have been the kind of Christian who uses biblical principles as a weapon against others. And that is not love, and that approach is not of God. Either because our principle is wrong, like the Pharisees, or because we're neglecting other important godly principles that should guide our approach. But the approach that champions people over principles is equally wrong, and yet wholeheartedly embraced by many Christians today. They'd never say it this way, We wouldn't. It sounds too bad. But that way of living suggests that our feelings about a person or situation are more important than biblical truth. Think about the arguments that are made then or now on both sides of the discussion about Sabbath keeping. How much is godly principle and how much is what the individual making the argument wants to be true? Now apply that test to issues like abortion or Me Too accusations, questions of sexual or gender identity, critical race theory, or just decisions about parenting. How much of our position 
is godly principle and how much is just what we want to be true. Whatever the matter is, Christians must take the time to carefully consider it. We must understand the facts of the situation and evaluate all the biblical principles that apply, setting aside our own. And then we must have the courage to speak what we conclude. Through the Pharisees' questioning, both the young man and his parents are forced into the process I just described. They're forced to consider the facts slowly and again and again and to evaluate the principles at work. Both the man healed and his parents, I believe, come to the same conclusion. But they don't both have courage. So in verse 19, the Pharisees ask the parents two questions. Is this your son who was blind? And how does he now see? And desperately wanting to avoid trouble, they only answer the first. Yes, this is our son. They know how he can see. But they won't say. And I wonder what you think of that decision. After all, the parents are scared because the Pharisees are powerful. The word at the end of verse 22 is unsynagogued. Let me tell you, you don't want to be unsynagogued. <laughs> These are not well-off people. These are not people of high social stature. Their son is a blind beggar. They're barely making it. Life is already hard. And to tell the truth to these Pharisees puts even what little these people have going for them at risk. Kids, I know this is a dilemma that you face from time to time. When telling the truth means dealing with the consequences. We know that we shouldn't lie to protect ourselves, though we feel that temptation too. When the consequences are really bad, what if they're bad consequences for someone else? What if we're supposed to say what someone else did? What do we do about telling the truth when there's a price to pay? Well, the parents lie. They say, how he sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. But isn't isn't their case just a little sympathetic? Can't you feel for them? Can't you set aside this blunt commitment to the truth and just love people where they are? As sympathetic as their case may be, Scripture makes clear that this was the wrong thing to do. Our sympathy for people or the consequences of doing what's right doesn't cancel the biblical principle. Yet how often do we do the same thing in our own lives? How often do we justify what we do, not by godly principle, but by the outcome or the outcome we're trying to avoid? I'm sure the Pharisees are getting frustrated by this point. They're trying to make a case against Jesus. They're trying to all get on the same page, but no one will give them anything to work with. And when they do, those two pesky facts keep getting in the way. In verse 24, they have to call back the until so recently blind man and offer him a deal. And here's the deal. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That might sound like a pretty good deal, actually. 
We know that he was blind and he was made healed. And he's allowed to admit that. He's allowed to tell people that God healed his blindness. All they require of him is that they don't tell anyone Jesus of Nazareth is God. What would you do? The man, like his parents, knows what he saw. But unlike his parents, he has the courage of faith to say, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And that dials the Pharisees' frustration up a notch. It's not clear to them that he's taking the deal. So they return to questioning the facts. Perhaps they're hoping that some inconsistency in his testimony will disqualify him as a witness. But the more the man thinks about what happened, the more he considers the godly principles at play, the more he's changed. And so verses 27 through 34 go really poorly for the Pharisees. The man has considered these same facts and principles again and again, and through that, his eyes have been opened more and more to the truth about Christ. And that makes him bold. That gives him the courage of faith. So bold, he asks the Pharisees if they're so interested in Jesus because maybe they're thinking about becoming his disciples. And then he he sarcastically mocks their ignorance of Jesus' origins. I thought you guys knew everything. You don't even know where he's from? And the icing on the cake is when he correctly employs the same logical test that the Pharisees haven't gotten right yet. He says, one, God listens to the righteous, not the unrighteous. Two, this man is doing the works of God. God is listening to him. Thus, he must be righteous. In fact, he must be God. What the healed man finds remarkable, wrote one pastor, is not his own belief, but the official's unbelief. To him, the conclusion is obvious. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, kids and adults, I say kids when I want to talk to the adults too anyway. It's really important that we see what happens next. Don't miss this. The man did everything right. He carefully evaluated the situation. He identified and applied the godly principles. He reached the right conclusion. And then he stepped out in faith, speaking the truth in a risky situation. The man did everything right. And what happened next? They kicked him out of the synagogue. Exactly the thing his parents feared. Exactly the thing that, humanly speaking, would ruin his life. Doing the right thing didn't get him a ribbon. It didn't get him a happily ever after scenario at this point. It got him ostracized from the only community he had ever known. Jesus said before that These men are of the world, and the world will not appreciate how carefully you considered the situation or how faithfully you gathered the facts or the godliness of your principles. The world cares about one thing, whether or not you agree with them.
Do you do what they want you to do? And in this case, it's doubly tragic because these men aren't just random observers. They're the man's religious leaders. The neighbors brought him to these men, these shepherds of the flock, seeking godly instruction about a significant situation. They came to be shepherded. These shepherds cared nothing for the sheep. So then look at the contrast in verse 35. Who goes after the man? Who goes looking for the man? Hearing that he's been expelled, the good shepherd goes to him. And this exchange makes visible what I said at the beginning, what we rarely get to see, but what we must understand to be true. This man suffered. He was born blind. This man was healed, but suffered more when even that brings calamity into his life. He's cut off from Israel's religious and social community. He's probably estranged, at least somewhat, from his parents now. Suffering upon suffering. Is this what happens when you abide with God? And in verses 35 to 39, and again through the contrast in 40 and 41, we get to see in this one case what so often in our lives remains invisible. How God is working out all things to his glory and the good of his people. This man is brought to saving faith. The full expression of the faith that God has given takes root in him. And he says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And Jesus shows that even God's judgment against unbelief, even the suffering that's coming from these religious rulers is working to God's good purposes. Jesus is polarizing. When the light comes into the world, people respond either as this man did or as the Pharisees have. The man born blind was made to see. He understood first that he needed sight. And when it was given to him, he saw everything and he worshiped the one who opened his eyes. The Pharisees think they see it all already. They turn away from the light of Christ. It's blinding to them because it illuminates their sin and their need. As another teacher put it, Jesus did not come into a world of sinners aware of their need and eager to be rid of their sin. He came to us. Then and now, two faulty approaches to understanding tempt us away from Christ. We won't discern the righteous path. We won't abide with Christ if we follow our feelings and our wishes. Putting people over principles does not ultimately honor God or love our neighbors. But neither will commitment to ungodly principles. These approaches blind us to who Christ is and to how we follow him in faith and neither result in love of God or neighbor. But Christ, God's ultimate self-disclosure, Jesus, the good shepherd, is always leading us to God and therefore to godliness, to love of God and neighbor. So Christians abide in Christ. 
learn from him the principles that flow from the very heart of God. And by them, see all things rightly and love God and man fully. By God's help, we can. Amen.